0: Welcome to the philanthropy masterminds podcast brought to you by donor search the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders innovators and change makers in fundraising philanthropy and civil society i'm your host jay frost richard portis is one of the foremost figures in global fundraising for decades he has been pioneering introducing and successfully executing extraordinary direct response efforts throughout the world first with UNICEF's national chapters and country offices, and later with many of the leading international charities, including MSF, WWF, Save the Children, UNHCR, and others. Born in Shanghai to Jewish refugees from Europe, raised in Hong Kong, and educated in the UK and USA, he is frequently traveling between Europe, Asia, and America, showing organizations that everything is possible. We begin our conversation with a stunning story of his mother's flight from the recent nazi occupation of vienna so richard you're about to tell me about the crossing the pacific story of your family what is that story
1: well it's not really my whole family but um, as you may know from previous discussions that we've had my parents um, were born in vienna And they left uh, Vienna in 1938, um, shortly after the Anschluss, when you know Germany invaded and took over Austria. And so my mother, who had not met my father at that time, um, actually um, to in order to get out of Austria, um, since she was Jewish, um, got a job as a nanny to the Indian Consulate General in New York, and uh, then took the train, I think, or flew to London, uh, joined the family, and then went over to New York with the family. In fact, uh, ended up living in Portchester, which is about 10 minutes away from where I am now. But um, after being a nanny for a year, she got kind of uh, impatient and wanted to to move on. And her boyfriend at that time had gone to Shanghai because he had studied uh, the Chinese language. And Shanghai, you know, was one of the few places in the 1930s where you could go without a visa because it was an international city. There was a French concession and a British concession and a, I think an American concession and so on. Shanghai was kind of divided up into these international zones. So a lot of Jews from Central Europe actually ended up in Shanghai. So my mother, who was, I guess, about 20, 21 at the time, um, took the Trans, what is it, the Trans-Canadian Railway to Vancouver, got onto, you know, one of these tramp steamers and got in steerage and went across the Pacific in this little... um, cargo ship, I guess, that took a few passengers. She said it was the worst journey of her life, and <laughs> ended up three or four weeks later in Shanghai, where she met uh, her boyfriend and they got married. But um when you mentioned about crossing the Pacific, it uh, it brought that to mind. and she she was quite a quite a character. and she did a lot of journeys like that, including, at one point, taking the Trans-Siberian Railway across Siberia, um, and and doing kind of wild things. And so,
0: these are your parents.
1: This is. The- <laughs> yeah. So uh, eventually, my mother met my father in Shanghai, and mm-hmm. I was actually born in Shanghai.
0: Right.
1: And, uh, we left when I was about three years old. Moved to Hong Kong, and I then grew up in Hong Kong. Eventually went to school in England, and finally came to the United States for graduate studies and um, actually did uh, graduate work in political science at Columbia University before joining the UN. Well, be-
0: before we even go there, because that's, that's a lot of ground you just covered. Uh, <laughs> if you have a, a mother who uh, left Europe at one of the last possible moments, correct in safety went to <laughs> work at an indian with the indian consulate which is pretty remarkable in new york and then uh, took the steamer to shanghai then met your father the man correct. who was become your father and stayed there what was he doing there what what were they both doing at the time when they first met
1: well they were part of this jewish community of about 30,000 people who had made their way to shanghai from various Central European locations, Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you couldn't get into the United States in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, The only people who got into the United States are people like Einstein, you know, and uh, very famous scientists who had special visas arranged for them, but ordinary people just couldn't get into the US unless maybe you'd been on the waiting list for 10 years or something. So um, all these um, sort of Jewish people from central the central Europe, and the irony is, my mother wasn't even Jewish by religion. She was, Jew, ethnically Jewish, but had actually converted to Lutheranism. Um, but um, of course, for the Nazis, that did not make any difference. Right. So she and um, my father se- separ- separately ended up in Shanghai. My father went through, actually, through Denmark. Uh, where he had an uncle. He, he stayed in Denmark for a while uh, until the Nazis started to tighten up in, in Denmark. The first couple of years of the occupation, they pretty much left the Danes to themselves and they did not interfere. And you, you may have heard of the uh, famous story at some point that all the Danes wore yellow um, Stars of David on their lapels, so that the Nazis wouldn't know who, who who were Jews and who were not Jews. Um, but anyway, at, at a certain point, my father decided it just wasn't safe to stay in Denmark. So he took a ship, he got on a ship and he went uh, all the way to Shanghai. I think his uncle gave him $50, $50 or 50 pounds or something, and that was it. <laughs> so they
0: survived. I I wonder what happened with the rest of your family that was in Europe. Well,
1: yeah, the, the rest of the family, unfortunately, is is, is a bit sad. The, um, the previous generation, in other words, my parents' parents, um, some of them um, were actually caught and went to concentration camps and were lost. And uh, some of them went to Israel, actually. Um, on my father's side, um, his sister and cousins went to Palestine. which which was palestine in those days and in the in the 1930s and then ended up living in israel and and of course their children are still in israel to this day
0: now once you're uh to be parents were in shanghai uh in this community of i don't know if they would even call themselves refugees it was it was a community it was a place they chose so they were there what what kind of Work with how did they survive? Because well, it, it was uh, also in the middle of it, this, was at the beginning of the war, so yes. Shanghai was not an island unto itself. It was also there were a lot of things happening in China,
1: absolutely. In fact, Shanghai was under Japanese occupation, and um, I mean, I could tell you lots of stories that would go on for hours, but uh, the stories I heard from my parents about living in Shanghai under Japanese occupation, and fortunately because they were austrians and austria was considered part of germany they were treated as though they were allies <laughs> and you know every now and again apparently the the german uh, consul or ambassador whoever was in shanghai would would go to the japanese authorities and say hey you know you've got so many jews living here you should they're da- they're a danger to your to your regime, you should round them up and put them into camps. And you know the Japanese, who wanted to be good allies to the Germans, said, "Oh yes, certainly, we will we'll round them all up." So they sent out their soldiers, and soldiers, being very polite Japanese, would you know knock on the doors and say, uh, "Excuse me, ma'am. Uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, are there any Jews living here?" And of course, my parents would say, "No, there's no Jews here." Um, you've got the wrong place. And they'd say, thank you very much. And then they'd go back to the uh, Japanese authorities, the soldiers, the Japanese soldiers, and they would say, we couldn't find any Jews in Shanghai. And so the next day, the German ambassador would come around and say, well, how many Jews did you round up? And the Japanese magistrate would say, well, I'm very sorry, We, we did a search, but we couldn't find any Jews, so we can't help you. And it was thanks to that, you know, that the Japanese really didn't care and didn't, you know, differentiate between German Jews and German Gentiles. That um, so many Jews survived in Shanghai. Wow! So, so um, wow! So there they that's,
0: were surviving that's, that, and yeah, then you were—that's were,
1: how, how the community survived, basically all thirty or forty thousand of them.
0: And and then you, you were born there.
1: I was born there, but I don't remember much. We left it when I was three years old and moved to Hong Kong. Right.
0: Um, well, again, there's another story right within that. So Hong Kong was under, of course, British rule or British control. I'm not sure which term was used then. Well it's British
1: colony. Yeah.
0: Yes. Um, and so that's, I'm sure, a world you remember quite well.
1: Yes. And Hong Kong was a fascinating place in the 50s it was very cosmopolitan you know I went to a school in which there were kids from 50 or 60 different countries uh, mainly you know the kids of of diplomats and uh, shipping uh, employees and you know whatever industries uh, import export and so on that was just developing in Hong Kong at the time I I went through the British school system I uh, then ended up going to college in England and then eventually for graduate school came to the United States.
0: You were, I I know you went to Sussex, I believe. Um, and so I guess the British system of education, it's again, interesting that that was all occurring within Hong Kong. And for people who are listening now, they may not have a concept about what that was like to be, uh, in, um, in Hong Kong at that time, in that kind of environment, because of course Hong Kong is now a, a part of China. What was it like for you being a young person going to a British school, but it, within China? I mean, for all intents and purposes. So, both linguistically and culturally, what kind of influence did that have on you?
1: Well, it was very much like living in any British colony at that time. And, you know, there was still a lot of. British colonies in the 1950s. The most most of the British colonies didn't get their independence until the 1960s. Um, so it was a, a, a British culture, culturally a British-dominated society, at least among the expats who were living there. Of course, um, the expats were a minority, maybe one or two percent of the population, um, and then there were a lot of Chinese who were well-educated and many of whom had fled from Shanghai and from China when the communists took over China. And um, like I said, I went to a school with um, 50, 60 different nationalities, but about one third, maybe to a half of my schoolmates were Chinese, although, of course, the language of instruction was English. And um, I always joke about the fact that um, my colleagues that I went to in high school and primary school and secondary school, um, the ones who um, went back to their countries, you know, the United States, Britain, Scandinavia, Germany, whatever, we all ended up, you know, getting this wonderful education back in Europe, which our parents thought we couldn't get in Hong Kong. And we all ended up being working stiffs. And, and of course, all the uh, kids in my class, or not all, but a lot of the kids in my class, Who were chinese and didn't have the benefits of getting a european education stayed behind in hong kong and they've all become billionaires
0: (laughs) (laughs) you didn't mention whether or not you had brothers and sisters so on this journey was this all just you and your parents making your way through this kind of yeah i
1: have one one brother who's who's three and a half years younger than me so yes he he was traveling but he wasn't actually born until after we left shanghai okay but he grew up in hong kong with me yes and he, he now lives in 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 london and was educated in england too
0: um this this whole journey is interesting from the standpoint that much of your work of your life has been truly global in nature and and i know we'll get into that but that's why i was probing because it speaks to uh your level of comfort with and probably interest in the world around you that you you grew up in an environment like that but also maybe just the way your parents were uh, it, were your parents uh doing these things and making these choices just because they had to or was it part of their character because when you described your mother it sounds like she was uh, not only person who uh, took the the opportunity to do things that would be helpful for her, that would protect her, but also that were pretty interesting to do. There, there were a lot of other ways that people would try to survive these circumstances, but she found a really extraordinary way of doing it.
1: Right. Well, you know, I I always say that um, my parents' generation were the ones who really, you know, really had a hard l- hard life, had a hard time. I suppose that's true of Americans, too, because our parents' generation, you know, went through the Depression and things like that. Um, And but really, I have to say that uh, being in the next generation and growing up in Hong Kong, I mean, I felt very privileged. And, you know, I got a good education in Hong Kong uh, from in a British school, um, which was really more like an international school. I was then, you know, sent to England for for my university undergraduate education. So I think that the the amount that our parents' generation suffered, in a way, um, led to um, us in our generation having a pretty easy life. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. compared to what they went through. So I've always I've always felt that uh, we belong to a blessed blessed uh generation that that had it pretty easy and that had good opportunities um no matter whether we were in hong kong or in in europe or in in north america
0: but it also sounds like it inspired a a fair amount of comfort with adventure or an interest in it because you didn't have to necessarily go to sussex and then to columbia you i mean i'm sure you with your parents influence chose to do those things so how did you choose to go to Britain for the university and then on to Columbia?
1: Well, having been through the British educational system in Hong Kong, which was basically an extension of the British educational system being a being a colony, it was logical to go to an English university and I went through the same process that uh, most English or most Britishers of my age went through where you'd apply to, you know, half a dozen universities and then you went to wherever you were accepted. And I, it happens that I was accepted to Sussex.
0: And you were studying poli sci, is that right at that point? Or what yeah, was it? Yeah, well, that? they
1: called it international relations in those days. Um, right. And then um, in my last year before I graduated, I, I saw a, um, an announcement on one of the notice boards uh, asking people to apply for English-speaking union fellowships at American universities. And having studied international relations, it, it, was, it made sense to go and do my graduate studies in the United States. So again, I applied to a handful of universities um, and ended up uh, being accepted by Columbia and again having a very privileged existence in at Columbia, thanks to the fact that I was you know, a foreign student. And your parents were still back in Hong Kong during all of this? Yeah, my, my parents uh, stayed pretty much in Hong Kong for the rest of their lives. Um, my mother um, went back to Austria um, for the last three or four years of her life. In fact, when uh, when Hong Kong was handed back to the Chinese, Uh, It wouldn't have changed. It wouldn't have made much difference whether she went back or not. She just decided that was a good time to go back. My father had passed away by them and um, she actually ended up in in Vienna. And she was always, um, in spite of her experiences, she was always someone who loved um, Austrian or Viennese culture and Viennese traditions and, you know, went to the opera and all those kinds of things.
0: So there you were getting back to New York, which is where she first went. This is very funny. It's a, a yeah. <laughs> story ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and so you you were at Columbia studying, I guess, international relations and so forth. Um, did, did you have an appetite to stick around here? I mean, how is it that you <laughs> you managed to stay? How did you find New York after having this international existence?
1: Well, New York is just as international as any of the big cities, I guess, that I had been to. So I felt very much at home. Um, I, um, studying and living in New York, of course, I applied for a job at the United Nations and I, I ended up getting a, um, kind of a part-time or temporary job at the United Nations, and then, um, migrated over to UNICEF and really spent most of my professional career, as you know, at UNICEF. I was at UNICEF for 33 years, hard to believe and uh, learned fundraising on the job pretty much and that's how i came into the world of fundraising
0: right and i know when we first talked it was i'm trying to remember what it was but i, I think it was around that time that i learned about the program that you built and i believe it was uh, george cassis and others worked with you is that right um in yes. building this this program this uh, massive uh direct marketing program that's that's not even a fair characterization you were really developing new markets or identifying Um, where there were people who would, for whom uh, UNICEF's mission would resonate. Right. Um, And Uh, that was pretty extraordinary.
1: Well, um, it it was, yes, it was, but it was also very natural when you come to think of it. Um, What was happening at that time was that um, UNICEF was raising, was getting most of its funds, about 80% or 85% of its funds were coming from government contributions. And I worked for a while in the program funding office, which was the department which um, sought donations from governments. And uh, at that time, there were these UNICEF national committees in about two dozen countries. Um, But basically, they survived on selling UNICEF Christmas cards and um, trick-or-treat programs.
0: Yeah, of course. Trick-or-treat for UNICEF.
1: Yeah exactly and um we just felt that there was much more that that uh, these unicef national committees could be doing so we 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 set up this was done by the then executive director of unicef a guy called james grant um james grant said well why don't we do why don't we have a fundraising department within unicef and uh, i was uh, At that time, working in the greeting card department doing licensing products and um, kind of was at a loose end. And so I ended up being one of the three people who started the UNICEF fundraising department in UNICEF International. And our job really wasn't to raise funds directly, but to coordinate and to, um, to help these national committees help each other to learn fundraising. So I kind of learned fundraising on the job, and then at the same time, I was teaching fundraising to um, people in other countries like Japan and Hong Kong and um, Australia, South Korea, um, countries that were emerging, Mm -hmm. but um, had not yet started doing fundraising. So basically, I was learning American methods and teaching American fundraising methods to European um, UNICEF committees and Asian, and also to some of our field offices in in South America. In other words, in countries where there was an emerging middle class. That's how I also got involved in fundraising in India, that um, in India, by the time Because I guess in the nineteen nineties and two thousands, India was emerging and with a strong middle class um, coming up, and we started to raise money in India for projects, UNICEF projects in India. So gradually, those countries, you know, we call them emerging countries, middle income countries, um, they gradually um, transitioned, I should say, from. Being countries that received UNICEF aid to countries that was actually raising money for UNICEF projects in their own country and also in other con- neighboring countries?
0: It, it, I seem to remember that there was um, some resistance within some of these countries that there was just not a belief that they that people there would give that that existed here uh, among Americans who thought well there's no money in these places those people don't have a culture of philanthropy these kinds of biases but even within the countries themselves or within the regions where people would say we don't have a history of that can you talk a bit about that uh first Mm -hmm. of all that 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 perception both here and around the world and then how And then what you found it to actually be like once you started doing the work?
1: Well, I think the the perception in UNICEF headquarters was was not at all that one couldn't raise money in other countries. It was the question was, why aren't we raising money in places like Japan? Or why aren't we raising more? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I think you may have heard this story before, but um, my boss at that time, who was head of the fundraising department, there were only three of us. I was, I was sort of one of the two, uh, the workers. My boss sent me to Japan to find out why we were only raising, I think it was about $15 million a year in Japan, whereas, you know, we were raising $100 million in Germany and uh, the United States, Canada, places like that, um, because Japan, you know, had had a high GNP capita GMP so I went I went to Japan and I interviewed our UNICEF support group there the UNICEF National Committee and you know I said to them how are you raising your funds I said oh well you know we go around to various organizations and to, to companies and we tell them about our projects and then we ask them for a donation of say hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars and I said well, have you thought about raising money from individuals? And they said, "Oh, you can't do that in Japan. It's not in our culture."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I I sort of went back and I told my boss about this. We developed a plan. I went back to Japan. I presented the plan, and I was basically laughed out of the room. You know, <laughs> they just said, "Oh, you know, Mr. Portis, this, this all sounds very nice, but this is American fundraising. This will never work in Japan." So I said, well, you know, headquarters have given me a small budget, so let's do a first mailing. And I, I found someone through actually the Direct Marketing Association, a Japanese gentleman who was on the verge of retirement, but who had experience with catalog marketing in Japan. And uh, together we, we developed a plan and we We got um, mailing lists, like from his um, university, the Alumni Association, and so on. We put these lists together. We sent out 100,000 letters. And uh, guess what the response was? I mean, we were expecting nothing. (laughs) The response was 17%. Mm -hmm. You know, 17% is unheard of. Uh, With an average donation, I think, of about the equivalent in Japanese yen of $60.
0: Which is that must have been at least double or triple what it was in the U.S. at the time,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, it was thirty dollars exactly. So um, the um, our Japanese committee, you know, were just absolutely flabbergasted. They couldn't believe, you know, the the checks and the money that was coming in to to their office. They were inundated with mail, you know. Uh, mailbags full of of donations coming in. And uh, the next thing that happened was that the newspapers got hold of this, got heard about this. And the newspapers (laughs) called in and said, we want to interview you about this. Why, you know, what is going on here? Well, the executive director, our Japanese executive director, hid out for five days because he was so afraid of what the media might say about this outrageous act that UNICEF was doing in Japan. <laughs> we finally managed to, we finally managed to get him to come back to the office <laughs> and accept some interviews. And, you know, they were all quite favorable, They were all quite favorable. Well, and, what
0: was he worried would happen? That I mean, was, was it because well, you know, were asking people for money? Was it because of where the list came from? Was it, what was it?
1: Everything, you know, everything that was unaccustomed, that they were unaccustomed to. Um, and uh, at first they just denied that they did it. They said, oh, <laughs> this was not." This was done by UNICEF headquarters, it has nothing to do with us. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the result of that, I can happily say, and it, it, it continued uh, for a number of years, was that they went from $15 million a year within, I think, seven or eight years, they were up to $200 million a year. Wow! So um, it really made a huge difference. Of course, it wasn't just direct mail. We also started telemarketing, and we started uh, major gifts and legacies and things like that. Um, and you know, today UNICEF Japan has a very similar fundraising program that you would find in any American, North American, or European nonprofit.
0: There's something I seem to remember about this when I first heard about it years ago uh, from you, which has to do with um, not just how the process worked, you know, finding a list, sending a letter, uh, testing it, and if it worked, doing more of what worked. Uh, all of that, of course, is is uh, a way of diffusing this idea that it's an American uh, process. It's just a process that, that works. But there is another element which is fascinating to me, which is, Japan is a country that was also still very rapidly, but recovering from the war. This is also true in some of the other emerging markets where you find these big growing middle classes and other markets where UNICEF worked. I think it included uh, Brazil and other places, I can't remember now. But in each of these places, uh, there was a lot of growth, especially post-war growth, and people who remembered what it was like to be without. Um, And I seem to remember some story about as uh, people saying you know uh, to other service organizations where were you when i needed my first glass of milk or my first pair of shoes and unicef was there um it, so how much of this is also recognizing where not only is there economic opportunity uh, but also um a, a group of people who really feel that this is important because they've been there themselves
1: well you know um this was in the 1990s, mid-1990s, so it, it had been uh, almost it had been a while, years, you know, almost 50 years since the, the war had ended, you know sure. Um, but uh, you're right. I mean, there were a lot of older people who donated to UNICEF because they said, "Oh, I remember getting UNICEF powdered milk, you know, when I was a baby when I was a child, or my parents telling me about UNICEF." So that certainly helped. But, um, you know, if you look at uh, the picture today, I mean, you've got uh, all the major charities uh, operating there. You've got CARE is there and Save the Children is in Japan. And, and one of my clients, Doctors Without Borders, MSF, right. uh, are, are doing very well. And um, the Japanese are also, you know, they've always had a pretty big foreign aid program. The Japanese are very well educated. They um Hear a lot about countries around the world and and uh you know in Asia and and also surprisingly in Africa. And we I've always found that appeals for Africa always do really well in Japan. Um so do of course appeals for Asian countries and and so on. So um Today um, and certainly when even when we were starting fundraising in the 1990s, you know, there was this feeling already in Japan. Yeah, you know, we we went through hard times during the Second World War and just after. But now that we are affluent and now that we're doing well, and you know, don't forget, um, uh, by the 1990s, Japan was <laughs> investing in real estate in the United States and. All kinds of things. They were considered uh, uh, economically equal to the Western countries.
0: Right. Yeah. You, you made a statement in a um, a podcast that I listened to recently. <laughs> Not sure if this is the right time to bring it up, but I just thought it was so funny and and interesting. You've been working with lots of Japanese and Indian uh, charities, and also working within those countries to do projects that it might even work uh, and benefit us charities and you said in japan nothing is possible but everything works in india everything is possible but nothing works
1: (laughs) can you just
0: talk about what that means and where where that comes from i know it's just a fun thing to say but i have a feeling there's a lot of um, of truth in it in terms of the kind of direct marketing that you've had to do convincing organizations but also carrying out the process raising the money yeah. What, what does that come from? <laughs> what is that about?
1: Well, it, it really came from my experience in those two countries. It, it just happens by accident that when I was at UNICEF, um, I spent a lot of my time, not all my time, I spent a lot of my time working with the UNICEF presence in those two countries. Right. Um, you know, they're large countries, they're economically, um, Japan certainly was economically advanced. And um, that was the result of my experiences. It was always very difficult to get a new idea to be accepted in Japan. But once it was accepted, it was done, executed beautifully. It was ex- executed with precision and with care and uh, even you know with, um, with, with new ideas being added and so on. Um, and in, in India, um, Gosh, the Indian people are so open-minded, you know, and so flexible. They would accept anything, you know, if you if you made a suggestion. Oh yes, yes, we can do that, absolutely. So they have a very very positive attitude, but sometimes they don't have, you know, the the experience, you know, the knowledge um, that the Japanese have. So they'll try something. They'll try a hundred things, you know, and uh, a lot of the things in fact, end up not working. But um, enough things do work in the end, after you know a lot of hand-holding and uh, guiding and mentoring, enough things work that, that they have, a I think, a very thriving and very successful um, f- philanthropic um, uh, environment in India. And of course, you know, Indians themselves, the, the middle class and the upper class Indians uh, see the poverty around them and they see that there's so- that something needs to be done about it and they're tired of just uh, giving money to panhandlers. So they've been convinced, you know, to set up their own organizations. One of my uh, clients is an organization called CRY, which stands for Child Rights and You, C-R-Y. Mm-hmm. They've been... Uh, going since I think the 1980s, and uh, they've built up you know, um, several hundred thousand, a mailing list of several hundred thousand supporters. Um, they raise funds from corporations, and the Indian government has also been very helpful in the sense that they have actually mandated, a, there's a requirement for all Indian corporations um, that, you know, operate a, at a, above a certain level to give 2% of their um, corporate profits to some kind of a social cause. They can set up their own foundations or they can give that money to existing foundations in India. And um, it's taken a while for that to build up, but I understand that that's uh, doing pretty well and, and a lot of nonprofits in India um, function on the basis of, of that 2% that they get from corporations.
0: I don't know if it, if there's anything like that anywhere else in the world where the government mandates that companies have to give 2% of their proceeds if they're above a certain level and that has to go to charity. Is there anything like that anywhere else?
1: I have heard that there's something similar in Brazil, but uh, it's certainly you know far, few and far between. Um, there's not many... Or not many countries that do that
0: right we certainly don't have that here not only the mandate but even that percentage as an average for right. you know the larger yeah. companies um I I think it says a lot about um how these environments develop and part of it is these these kinds of partnerships like the work that you've done people being open and responsive to it willing to grow the sector and then they make their own decisions internally. The government, the society, the organizations, they keep they keep riffing off whatever they decide works in their environment. It speaks a lot to this kind of nimbleness, but there's something embedded in all of this, which is something else you've talked about elsewhere, um, which is not just things that work and don't work, but whether or not people are willing to do things, like you you were talking about with these two countries, these two cultures um and part of that also stems from this kind of idea about trust and we're having a a real issue with trust and with charities in this country and maybe around the world um and and you were talking about this you had an exchange with someone in a in a blog recently and you said Um, aren't there larger societal trends that have caused the decline in the numbers of households making donations, which is something we've talked a lot about here and has been written about recently. And you mentioned two huge increases in income disparity and um, an accompanying rise in cynicism and lack of trust in our institutions. Um, These two ideas are, are really interesting to explore, not just in here, Um, and in these kind of, quote, mature economies, unquote, but also in all these emerging markets that you've worked in throughout the years. Do you have thoughts about these two issues about um, uh, income disparity and trust in institutions and how they're influencing the work you do and also the problem we're encountering here with the decline in the number of households that give?
1: Yeah. um, You know with reference to India and Japan, where I do most of my work and and what we've just been discussing, I don't think they're at the stage yet that we've reached, you know, in the West of skepticism and distrust in nonprofits, which I I grant you is probably increasing. Um, In Japan, the... It, it, it surprises me that there is still a very, very high level of trust in institutions. I mean, you even see that in terms of the number of people that support, say, the United Nations. Um, this high respect and high support for the UN and its um, agencies. Um, and surprisingly, well, maybe in the last few years, it's come down a bit, but surprisingly, it's still relatively high. Compared to Western countries, um, same thing in India. You know where the UN is actually, um, and all developing and all emerging countries, the UN is actually quite active in those countries. So um, they they see the benefits of um, in, at least international institutions. Um, I think that there is some, you know, beginning to be some um, uh, distrust in in India of the government. Um, The government, you know, recently uh, in the last few years has been quite conservative and the Congress Party, the more liberal Democratic Party, um, has not done well. Um, So there may be some... Skepticism growing there, but yeah. on the whole, I would say and that the they, they haven't reached yet the stage of of widespread cynicism and skepticism, at least when you compare it to to Western countries. So, fortunately, um, also having worked for UNICEF for so many years, uh, fortunately. That was not one of the main challenges that we faced.
0: So you were able to go in and you had that brand, uh, uh, I guess, identity. And so yeah. That... in
1: some countries, we even found that uh, people may, might have been more skeptical of their own government and were more willing to support an outside entity like like UNICEF or the United Nations and so on. Um, and they trusted the outside entity to be less corrupt and um, more efficient in terms of distributing um, social benefits. Right. So, are and, are are you seeing a
0: gener- just a general overall growth in the kinds of things that you've been doing all this time? Or that that the charities are able to implement these programs and grow the pot of money that they bring in the revenue and to do more good, or what? What kind
1: of yeah, trajectory think, are you seeing? I think so. Certainly in the countries that I've been involved with, um, you know, I mean, take a country like India. Mm. There are, I don't know how many millions of people each year entering the middle class, you know, coming up from lower class or abject poverty. Um, I mean, with that come all kinds of other problems of urbanization and environmental degradation and so on that you, you know about. But um, I think that uh, in in developing countries now that there, there is uh, an expansion of the nonprofit sector. Um, there's always, you know, some scandals and some bad apples and so on that uh, – causes skepticism but I think on the whole it's growing and on the whole there's probably better growth among non-governmental organizations than there is uh, among governmental organizations
0: it's it's just interesting when you wrote this comment and then what you've just said it points to this other piece of of your earlier writing which is income disparity and maybe by extension wealth disparity that um there's been Uh, Of course, increased wealth inequality we all know about in the United States. And I don't hear a lot of people talk about that in the same context of decreasing households uh, generosity. But uh, but you pointed to it and you've just pointed to two other countries where they're very different from one another. Japan, however, has kind of a relative um, equality of, of income and wealth relative um it's kind of a flat uh economy and then India you have increased uh you know a growth of the middle class and you have a growth in wealth there's still poverty obviously tremendous poverty but there's a huge growth of wealth and a huge growth of the middle class so in other words by extension decreasing wealth inequality to some degree and in both those places it seems like there's still there's trust in nonprofits and people are giving and the market's expanding while we're seeing some contraction. Um, it's, it's. I'm, I'm not asking a political question here so much as a practical one. When you go and talk to then organizations and have this discussion, I wonder how you help them to see the markets they need to talk to and the ways they need to talk to them so that they foster the trust among the people who have the resources so that they'll give, especially environments where you know, we we might see increased wealth inequality or income inequality like the United States.
1: You know, um I, I'm not sure if people in those countries, say, take Japan, whether they see or feel uh, income inequality. What mm-hmm. I do know is that certain events, you know, certain happenings, tend to to change social behavior. Let's take Japan, for example, you know, in 2011, they had the big earthquake and tsunami. And there was a huge outpouring of charity and of people donating and um, volunteering and uh, uh, giving money to nonprofit organizations. And uh, of course the Japanese government did a lot based on the money that they had from taxes. to to reconstruct and to um, rebuild and and to um, help areas that have been seriously affected to recover. But uh, I'm told, um, uh, you know, the Japanese Fundraising Association also uh, grew up at that time Hmm. and uh, became very, um, very much in, in demand from nonprofit organizations They have a big conference every year like the AFP in the United States. Um, There was definitely a huge jump in awareness of the need for people to give. And I think that once people start giving, you know, they tend to continue to give. For most people, no matter what their culture or their country, um, giving becomes a habit. Giving becomes something that... uh, you do you don't just you know take for granted that the government will take care of everything but you you start getting involved yourself and uh even though there are these income disparities, I think in at least in the emerging countries there's still on on balance more um, increase in the middle class than there is you know decline in the middle class so. Perhaps that's an, another factor that doesn't make that trend, you know, so prevalent in in the in developing and emerging countries.
0: What what's some of the biggest? Uh, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the last few years, especially um, during the pandemic? But uh, as you're working with the organizations in in other countries.
1: Gosh, well, since you mentioned the pandemic, you know, um, I think we all know that those um organizations and this applies in india and japan and all over the world as far as i've heard you know during the pandemic um giving really increased and it increased especially among those organizations that were not afraid to reach out and ask for funds those organizations that pulled back and a lot of them did Um, I think suffered very much in terms of income because they just didn't ask for it. And they did not realize that uh, most of the population would be motivated to give more rather than to give less during a pandemic. So um, in terms of certainly in terms of my work, I've been very much busier in the last three or four years than I ever had been before. And uh, I wouldn't say that you know it's necessarily a great thing to to live through a pandemic, but from a fundraising point of view, um, it's really done well for those organizations that were willing to face up to it and and were' willing to continue asking uh, and perhaps even asking more than before.
0: so coming out the other side of that, as we all hope we we will be and and are doing. Uh, what do you imagine the effect will be? Do you think that, as you said a minute ago, once people start giving, they just keep giving? Or do you imagine that there'll be some kind of change in how people give or how organizations interact to ask people to give or?
1: I think there's always, after a big boost like that, there's always a decline. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at the curve, you know, it goes up and then it drops and then it goes up again and drops
0: right. like the stock market. Um, yes, sure.
1: Yeah. So uh, maybe for a year or two, people will be less inclined to, to make donations, but uh, they'll come back. They'll come back. And and uh, I'm, I'm sure that the upward trend will continue.
0: So is there something that um, nonprofits should be doing? differently to try and avoid a, you know falling off the cliff for a couple of years? Should they be talking to people more often you or know, differently?
1: The biggest change that I see, I, I think is the obvious one that, um, fundraising is moving much more into the digital arena. And I would say even more so in, in Western Europe and in Asian countries than in the United States, hmm. um, in the United States, you know, we have this amazing um, situation where the government actually subsidizes postage rates for nonprofits. As far as I know, that does not exist anywhere else in the world. And um, so I think the, the flight away from you know, traditional channels of fundraising, like direct mail and telemarketing and so on, has been much quicker in Europe and in Asia and in Latin America, than it has here in North America. So, um, in uh, another thing, too, is that people have become very protective of their privacy. You know that in Europe, there are strict privacy regulations now. Japan last April adopted a very similar um, situation, very similar conditions that you have in Europe. It's become extremely difficult to get hold of mailing lists um, in Japan, whether it's electronic mailing lists or uh, physical you know, snail mail lists and so on. Uh, in Japan now, you cannot even um, do a merge purge or you know deduplication or a matching of lists without asking people for their permission to do it.
0: Mm.
1: So a lot of the big um mailers, you know, have have devised all kinds of schemes to get people to opt in, even when they're not really opting in, um, so that they can get around you know that, that regulation. But it's definitely become tougher. And of course, as things become more expensive and more difficult and, and tougher to do, you tend to migrate over to the internet and email and so on, where the costs are so ridiculously low that you, you, know, you can contact millions of people by email um, at virtually no cost at all. Yeah. So that, that, that's the biggest trend that I see um, in the world of fundraising. And it's not unexpected and it's not something that we don't know about al- already here in the United States.
0: It it does mean that people have to be nimble, though, because as you just said, if Japan's adopted a law that's similar to that of Europe, it's, it's also going to be a little bit different from the law in the United States or from Europe. And so we have to be knowledgeable, and um, especially if we want to be uh, interacting with other markets. And I know that you've done that throughout your career. And before we began today, you were even talking about how you're doing more I think you said physical mail out of India. So how are things changing for you in particular? What do you imagine that your portfolio looks like as you look ahead a little bit, the kinds of work that you do, the organizations you choose to work with and, and how you work with them?
1: Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I have really had to slow down or reduce the amount of work that I can do in places like India and Japan. And uh, what I'm trying to do is to balance that out by um, by working more in the United States and Canada, but um, you know, instead of doing the, let me put it this way: in the 1990s and in the 2000s, we used to print direct mail packages here in mm-hmm. the United States and send them over to to Japan and other countries. Now it's almost the reverse has happened. We're we're now printing packages in India, um, where. The knowledge is there. The know-how is there. Um, They can do all kinds of very sophisticated direct mail packages and premiums and personalization and so on. And India still has a considerable amount of freedom when it comes to to data processing. Um, But So we're producing basically direct mail packages in India, putting them into containers and bringing them to the United States and Western Europe and Canada um, so that... um, Nonprofits that do still operate in that environment um, can produce these packages for a much, much lower price than when they were producing them um, within the country or even in China.
0: I think it would surprise a lot of people to know uh, that if you're in Omaha and you got a piece of mail that says New York, it actually came by container ship from India. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's well, that's you a pretty very, big change. If you look very carefully, you'll see somewhere printed in India or printed in China, because that's you know that's a requirement by the um, U.S. Customs Service. You've got to uh, you've got to show the origin of everything that you bring into the United States.
0: Our politics have changed uh, a lot here and they're changing all the time throughout the world. Um, There's a lot of sensitivity to where we do our business, where things are made. Um, Do you anticipate that that's going to influence anything about this kind of work and the choices that charities um, make here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very concerned about the continuing escalation of mistrust um, and conflict with China. Um, I can't actually envisage a situation in which we actually have the same kind of conflict or um you know what what you call it um um you know like like we have with russia in in the ukraine i, mean, I can I, I think that if china were to really um invade uh, taiwan and uh, the united states were to support taiwan i think it would be a huge catastrophe i mean think of how many things we get, we have in our everyday life that are made in China. I just cannot imagine what we would do, at least in the short run, um, if all of a sudden that was stopped. I, I don't think it's even possible. I remember um, people saying back in the, uh, in I guess it was the, the 90s, 80s and 90s, people were saying, you know, um, oh, a war between a war between India and Pakistan that seemed quite likely at that time. Remember, mm-hmm. um, the it got to a certain stage where, um, because India and Pakistan were economically so linked, where the industrialists, you know, would come to go to the government and say to the government, "Stop saber rattling," you know. Um, Especially once they both had nuclear weapons. and um, they managed to avoid, you know, continuing these periodic wars that took place between India and Pakistan because of the nuclear weapons and because of the economic ties and the economic dependencies. In the same way, i can I can understand how we might be have a conflict with Russia because we don't really need Russia, and Russia probably doesn't really need us in terms of manufactured goods but on the other hand if the same situation were to occur with China I think we'd be in in deep trouble both countries
0: it must feel a little bit personal for you, and, and you because if you were born where you were with the parents yeah. that you had and the place where you came up and the and the life you've chosen to lead I know part of this is just serendipity for any of us and you've had this incredible career making these choices. And you've just, you know, taking advantage of them and helped a lot of charities along the way. But some part of your heart must be in a place that we're now in direct conflict with. How do you feel about all that?
1: Well, there's certainly a lot of (laughs) conflicts. I mean, I'll I'll give you another example. I've always been a big supporter of the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan people who live in exile. And um, although maybe I've had some loyalties towards China because of having been born there and growing up there. At the same time, I also have strong feelings of supporting the Dalai Lama. I've even had the privilege of doing some fundraising training for the Dalai Lama's government. But, um, yeah, I mean, in today's world, you know, our, our interrelationships are so complex, that there's bound to be conflict, um, and there's bound to be conflict situations where you really don't know what sh- you know. What should I do? What what is the ethically right thing to do? Should I support um, printing in China, for example, or should I um, discourage my clients from from printing in China? Who knows? It's it, it's difficult, and I think one has to one has to look at each situation individually and come to one's own conclusions about it.
0: And then the nonprofits themselves, do we have a role to play in trying to do what those industrialists did or?
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Um, I know that a lot of nonprofits already are refusing to um, have their their fundraising materials printed in China uh, because they frankly don't want uh, to encounter the ire of their supporters when the supporters receive you know, a package that says printed in China on it. And it's one reason why a lot of them are moving to India, and I'm helping them do that. The Philanthropy
0: Masterminds podcast is underwritten by donor Search, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.